how's everyone doing this morning? Amen. Amen. Well, this feels very unfamiliar to me, to be real honest with you. I feel like I should be at a table and engaging in conversation with someone. By the way, uh, I was so nervous during those conversations. I was, uh, it's just a different format, you know, and uh, not really sure exactly what was going to come out. Uh, from those questions, and just want to make sure that all the answers were, were right. It was, it was pretty nerve-wracking. Uh, very, very difficult to prepare for something that's so dynamic and fluid. That being said, uh, as stretching as it was, it was also exhilarating. It was fun. It was, it was different, and it's something that I'm anticipating seeing more and utilizing more uh, in terms of how we communicate truth and how we engage people in deeper dialogues and, and how we um, approach different topics in the future. So uh, just, just by way of hands, how many of you guys would say, yeah, you know, that, that conversation format was something that uh, I really enjoyed. Can I see a couple of hands here? All right, all right, awesome. Well, if you're new with us into the house, we wanna welcome you. We just celebrated our three-year birthday uh, last Sunday. So if you're here today for the first time, uh, we just turned three last week and we are stoked about it. We've actually been around a lot longer than that. We've uh, This people, this house, this body, this fellowship of believers has actually been around for over 20 years. And uh, I've had the great privilege of being the senior leader for the past six years. And we changed our name three years ago to Antioch Church. So welcome to Antioch. My name's Jay Duncan. So glad to have you here with us today, if you're here with us for the first time. And today we are beginning a new series in the book of Revelation. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm approaching this with fear and trembling uh, in the fear of the Lord, but also approaching this with great excitement and great hope. So before we dive into that, I do have one quick announcement that I want to make that I feel is very relevant and very appropriate for where we are as a nation. And that very simply is there are a number of organized prayer movements that are taking place in preparation of and in movement toward the national elections. Now, some of you might be sitting out there saying, well, what's your position, pastor? I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> no, I'll probably share a little bit as the weeks go on. But uh, I, I have come to some discoveries and I also believe some conclusions as it relates to uh, endorsements and as it relates to uh, how we sway people towards national elections. And what I would much rather prefer is that every single one of us assume the measure of responsible ownership to study to understand what the issues are, to understand what the platforms are, and to, uh, to vote based on what our conviction and conscience is before the Lord and before the biblical worldview that we've developed and to respect one another as the people and the family of God in that process. Now, here's where I can get on board with this. Uh, this is a, a movement. It's a 40-day prayer movement. It actually began on September the 30th. So we're, we're coming into this just a couple of days uh, late, but it goes all the way up to November the 8th. It is uh, sponsored by a number of different prayer ministries in our nation. It's being uh, propagated mostly by uh, the Jericho Center and Every Home for Christ. And it's called Fast Forward America. And here's what I love about this. And here's what I can really get on board with this movement is that it is so holistic and it is so comprehensive, and it's not picking one, one member and saying, this is the person that we're going to vote for, and this is the person that we need to rally behind. It's not that kind of prayer movement. It is a movement that is, that is literally crying out for God's mercy and for God's grace to cover our nation. And it's, it is, when I say very holistic, uh, there's prayers for education, there's prayers for the sanctity of life, there's prayers for the homeless, the elderly, the disabled, there's prayers for unreached peoples, uh, peoples of other faiths and belief systems. 
uh, Christian laborers, the church, the marketplace. It is uh, the economy. It is a very, very comprehensive prayer guide. So if you'd like to get more information on this and if you'd like to participate in the way of fasting and in prayer to join the nation in praying for our nation, uh, you can receive more of that information at either of these websites, prayasone.org or fastforwardamerica.com. And, um, and uh, I believe that that will honor the Lord as we, as we join his people in praying for his goodness and his mercy to come to this nation. How many of you guys can agree with that? Amen, amen. Well, by this time, our ushers should have handouts to be uh, sending down your way. Everyone has your handout. Uh, this is going to be a pretty dense uh, series that we're going to be getting into. And so we figured that something in the way of handouts for you to follow along would be helpful for you. So you can expect those each week of the series. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in. So have your Bibles turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1 and have your uh, note, notes out there next to you and we're going to jump into Revelation. Father, thank you so much for the great privilege that we have to be called the people of God. We thank you that this privilege has come by way of something very valuable. It has come by the way of the obedience and the sacrifice and the blood of your son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you today, really we do, with hearts that are full of gratitude. We thank you, Jesus, that you showed us the way to the Father and you still show us the way to the Father today. Jesus, we thank you that you were faithful till the end. And we ask today for the ministry and the help. We ask today for the, the teaching and the guidance and the counsel and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We ask for the spirit of illumination and the spirit of revelation to be present within and upon and among the people of God as we dive into and delve into the book of Revelation. Father, we pray that you would grant us the courage and you would grant us the grace to lay down uh, previous paradigms that may not line up with what your heart and original intent for this book was, and that you would give us the ability to have ears to hear and eyes to see what it is that the Spirit is saying and what the Spirit has always been saying through this book. We ask these things today by faith, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, let me begin by saying if, if you know me for any amount of time, whether personally or even by way of from the platform here, you may have noticed or you may have heard that the book of Revelation is something that I've pretty much stayed away from pretty, pretty purposefully. And uh, I've, I've not had the best experiences with the book of Revelation, and that pretty simply is because I didn't understand it. And uh, the most of the translations or the interpretations will be a better word of saying that. Most of the interpretations that have come to me uh, through peers and through people around me have not quite been interpretations that, that I just resonated with. Uh, there is just something about the, the interpretation of the book that, I, 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 I don't know, I just, it didn't bear witness with, with my heart. It didn't bear witness with my mind. And Revelation was one of those books, particularly in undergraduate theology. So let me just paint a picture here for you. At ORU, you got, a, you got, a, you got classes that are filled with 18, 19, and 20-year-old kids and, uh, and arguing with finality and with certainty, I mean just dogmatic certainty issues that to me are very, very mysterious and very, very cryptic on purpose. And, uh, and, 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 you know, there's been a number of abuses that have taken place, particularly with the book, over the years. In fact, there was one particular uh, pastor, preacher that I was listening to, and I didn't realize this, but all the way back into the first century, almost every generation, from, from the first century church, almost every generation, has targeted some person and said, this person is the Antichrist, and every generation, and there have been multiple generations that have said, this is when the end of all time will come, and clearly every one of those generations has been wrong. And so it's been one of those books that I've just said, you know, we, I've, I've taken a real avoidance uh, position on it. In, in, in fact, one of my favorite mantras was one that I got from another pastor, and, and I would say this, I would say, 
Here's my eschatological stance. We are to work as if Jesus is not coming back for a thousand years, but we're to live like he's coming back today. And, uh, and that worked for me for quite some time until I had people that were, were much more astute in their thinking and learning experience. And they'd start to lean in on that and ask me questions. And I just realized I have zero answers. I have zero answers for all the questions in, in, in my little adage here. It's not, it's, not taking me, it's not taking me as far as I want it to go. A couple years ago, a uh, good friend, Hank Bond here, uh, leaned in on me uh, on, on a particular morning and he said, hey, would you, would you be open to us discussing and diving into the book of Revelation together? And uh, everything inside of me said, no, 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 I do not want to go into this book. And uh, by way of my love for him and his love for me and by way of just the, the history that we had built together, I said, I said, sure, Hank, I'll, if you lead me, I'll follow. And so we, we jumped into the book of Revelation together, and uh, we used a particular person's teaching on that. And, uh, and it was a great seedbed of stirring some things inside of my heart. That was about two years ago. And uh, this year in our series on the Lord's Prayer, you, you just can't really go through the Lord's Prayer and escape any major issue that connects to the kingdom of God. It's impossible. It really is impossible. The Lord's Prayer is so perfect and it's so holistic and it's so comprehensive that every major systematic theological issue is somehow connected to the Lord's Prayer. That's your eschatology. That's your understanding of the character and the nature of who God is. That's your understanding of the kingdom. Missions is connected to it. Prayer is connected to it. And so in our study of the Lord's Prayer, I found myself wrestling with the issue of eschatology, particularly thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then at the end of that scripture where it says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. So the Lord's Prayer and my interactions with, with people around me have forced me to wrestle with, uh, with diving into the book of Revelation. This summer, I found a number of resources that literally, you guys, uh, made my heart come alive. And when I say made my heart come alive, I've spent more time in the book of Revelation the past five months than I have my entire life. I really have. I've read numerous, numerous uh, theological accounts and theological commentaries on the book of Revelation, most of which are very, very consistent. And, um, and it's out of that experience and journey that I, I want to share some of that with you in the next eight weeks that we have together. So let's talk about very quickly the purpose of this series. What's, what's the purpose of this? What are we trying to hit? What are the targets that we're trying to hit during our time together? Number one, very simply is, this series is designed to help us as the people of God see the church as the people of God commissioned to be a faithful witness, to be a faithful witness to Christ and his kingdom. This is perhaps the greatest message that the book of Revelation is communicating. When the author John wrote this book, particularly to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor, and we find out who those seven churches are, both in chapter one and in chapter two, there was a particular intention that John and the Holy Spirit had for those seven churches to hear and to understand. Now, like all of scripture, Things are written to a historical context. They're written from a particular person to a particular people for a particular reason. But they still, because the word of God is living, they still speak in terms of the generations to follow. And they still have application for us today. So the same message that is being spoken to these seven churches... And it's interesting, we'll see this all throughout the book of Revelation. Numbers are very important, not as codes, but as prophetic symbols. And there's a different, I'll explain that a little bit later in, in today's message. So the number seven, as many of us prophetic people understand, is the number for completion, perfection. So it's not coincidental that John is writing to seven churches, seven meaning the number of completion, and so essentially he's writing to all of the churches, 
You see that? He's writing to the entire church because God very, very intentionally and very specifically chose seven churches throughout Asia Minor. It could have been eight, it could have been six, but he chose seven churches, and in so doing, there was this double meaning. I'm speaking specifically to these seven churches and issues that are very, very relevant to the churches that he was writing to, and yet he was also writing to seven churches, meaning these same issues are issues that are related to the entire church. The point here being, is that God wants and desires and has designed his people to be faithful to Christ, even as Jesus was faithful to God to the very end. Now, I think that it's interesting, and just, just to give you guys a little bit of understanding into my thinking, about five months ago, the preaching team and I got together and I said, leading up to the elections, I feel like we need to, we need to, do some instruction. We need to do some teaching in way of biblical worldview to prepare us to engage with this particular privilege and responsibility of citizenship in a responsible and an informed manner. And, uh, and so we actually crafted out an entire series that is way different than the series that we're actually engaging with. We crafted out an entire series about the biblical worldview of government and why citizens should vote and what responsible citizenship looks like. And some of you guys are thinking, I wish you would have chosen that series instead. And uh, as I began getting into the book of Revelation, something that I didn't realize is that Revelation is perhaps one of the most political books in the entire Bible because of the backdrop of which it was written. It was written in the backdrop of Rome literally conquering the world and dominating city, polis state after polis state and, and what, was, what was called uh, emperor worship. The imperial cult was on such a rise that all of these city states that Rome was conquering, essentially the pressure was just to fall into emperor worship. So whoever the emperor of Rome was, the dominant religion at that time was worshiping the emperor of the empire. So it's very interesting that we, we engage in this series in the backdrop of our current election because the message is the same. And the message very simply is, is that no empire will supersede the power and the greatness and the longevity of the kingdom of God. The message that remains the same is that Jesus has been and always will be the ruler of the kings of the earth. No matter who wins this election, he remains the ruler of the kings of the earth. No matter who wins this election, here's what remains the same. We are still called to be a faithful witness to God. In our culture, and listen Antioch, to one another, now, you may or may not like this, and you may or may not agree with this, but to me, it really doesn't matter on some level. But there are some people that are in this room that are diametrically and even diabolically opposed to your political belief system, and they're in your family. They're in your family. They're in this family. So whether you decide to say, I'm not going to vote, or whether you're a diehard, you have to vote, or whether you're a Trump supporter or a Hillary supporter or a third party or a write-in, here's the thing. You belong to the family of God, and you belong to Antioch Church. And we are called to be the family and the people of God. November the 9th, we're still going to be called to be faithful to Jesus and faithful to one another. And my prayer is that we don't lose anybody in the process. We have to learn how to disagree in a way that honors God. And we have to learn how to disagree with our political stances and with our political value systems in a way that still causes the higher value system of the kingdom, the higher value system of the kingdom should take precedence. Political seasons, generally speaking, can be driven by fear. And perhaps in my limited 39 years of life, this political season is, is driven by more fear and more manipulation and more division than any political season I think I've ever experienced in my life. 
Now, can I just call out a couple of big elephants? Number one, every four years, here's the same rhetoric I hear. This is the most important election in the history of our lifetime, right? How many of you guys have heard that before, right? And to some degree, it's true. And to another degree, four years from now, I bet you money you're going to hear this is the most important election in our lifetime. That's not to diminish the power and the role and the influence, but at the same time, it's not to give it more than it deserves. What is the most important thing in the history of our lifetime is that we remain a faithful witness to Christ and his kingdom until he returns. Number two, purpose of the series, to equip the people of God to read Revelation confidently. How many of you by show of hands, and I'll be the first one to raise my hand. How many of you by show of hands have... uh, avoided or evaded revelation simply because it is unlike any other book and it's a little confusing. Anybody avoided it? Me too. Thank you. I don't feel like such a noob now. (laughs) My hope and my desire is that as we discover and as we delve into things that scholars have invested just years upon years, we'll begin to look at that and go, you know, I may not understand it completely, but I understand it a little better than I did before. Now, let me give you some hope. Here's the hope. The more that you read this book and the more that you have sound commentary, here's what's gonna happen. The more you're gonna understand it. And the more you understand it, I believe two things will happen, which are primarily the purposes of the book. Number one, you are gonna fall more in love with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the central figure and he's the central purpose, the central player. Everything points to Jesus, not the Antichrist. Everything points to his kingdom, not millennial reign or amillennial, premillennial. Everything points to who Jesus is in the book of Revelation. If you will allow it, the throne room of God will capture your heart. And you will find yourself worshiping God in a greater way the more you understand the book of Revelation. So my hope and one of my objectives in this series is that we will begin to understand some of the type of literature that this is, why it was written, who it was written to, because all of those things matter in terms of understanding it. Third purpose is to strengthen our faith in Jesus Christ. It's to strengthen our faith One of the things that we see all throughout the book of Revelation is the faithfulness of God. Through judgment cycle after judgment cycle, one of the things that we'll notice is the relentless pursuit of a loving father for people. So any interpretation that somehow convinces us that God is a bloodthirsty, power-hungry maniac that wants to slaughter people, in my estimation, my humble opinion, that is a false interpretation. Because what we see over and over again, and you'll see this after vision cycle after vision cycle, you'll see this phrase and it says, and yet they still did not repent. What does that tell you? It tells you that the heart of God, very much like the plagues of Egypt, the heart of God is to turn people's hearts from sin, is to turn people's hearts from judgment and wrath and to reunite them and marry them to the heart of a loving father. That is the faithful characteristic of who our God is in the book of Revelation. To strengthen our faith in Jesus, to help us see Jesus as the faithful witness and to grow in our confidence, to grow in our assurance, and to grow in our trust of the faithfulness of God. I'm gonna say that one more time because it's extremely important in the backdrop of the purpose of this book. This book, this series and this book is designed to help us grow in our confidence, to grow in our assurance, and to grow in our trust of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. He's faithful to the earth he created. He's faithful to his people that he purchased. And he's faithful to his name and his nature. He is faithful. And no matter what type of tribulation or adversity or affliction or opposition or even death, we can trust the faithfulness of God. That's why the book was written. 
So that talks a little bit about the purpose of the series. Let me talk here for a few minutes about the purpose of the book. Why was the book written? Let's look at Revelation 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, chapter 1 of Revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Purpose number one, very simply, this book was written to reveal Jesus. It was not written to reveal the Antichrist. It was written, and I say some of these things, you know, I'm just being playful up here. But at the same time, if, if, if you're anything like me, most of the popular message and literature about Revelation is very Middle East, it's very beast, it's very rapture, and it's very antichrist-centric. But that was not the purpose of the writing of Revelation. The purpose of the book is to show the seven churches of Asia Minor, Jesus is so beautiful and brilliant, he is worth any affliction or suffering that you may go through. That's the whole point of the book. I want to show you Jesus like you've never seen him before because when it all shakes down and the fire gets hotter, you need to be captured. You need to be captured. You need to know that King Jesus is greater than King Nero or King Domitian or any other Roman ruler that's out there. You need to be captured by the reality of who the lamb is. Revelation, the word itself, simply means apocalypsis. Sounds very similar to the word apocalyptic. And apocalyptic is now known as a genre that deals with the end. You know, so many apocalyptic novels and apocalyptic movies that are out there. So we've actually taken a word that was originally designed to mean this. The word apocalypsis very simply means to reveal. It means to uncover. It means to take something that was hidden and make it known. But we've taken this word, apocalypsis, and we've translated it into our modern culture to mean the, the, the cataclysmic, world-shattering, devastating effects that relate to the end of the world. It's not what apocalypsis means. It means to reveal. It means to uncover. It means to show. It means to shine. Revelation was written to give the church in general, and it was written to give the seven churches in particular a revealing of who Jesus is. So a lot of the things that we're going to discover in my prayer are going to be true revelations, things that you didn't see in Revelation before. Things like Jesus is the lamb, and the way that the lamb conquers is by laying down his life, not by powering up and slaughtering everyone with his. That's the way that Rome conquers. That's the way the beast conquers. That's the way that empire conquers, by being stronger and by more powerful. That's not how the lamb conquers. The lamb wins by laying down his life, which actually takes greater strength and greater power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that time when Jesus is on the cross and, and they're just spitting insults and they're, they're, they're throwing things at him. And then right before that, he's having a conversation with Pilate. And here's what Jesus says. He says, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. That's the way of the lamb. And we're going to talk more about that next week. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Just, just in the spirit of revealing Jesus, Revelation 1, verse 12. This is one of my favorite parts of the book, 4 and 5 being just close second. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is John speaking of Jesus. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool. It was as white as snow, 
And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead and then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Just, just a quick thought right here. Don't you just love that? Don't you just love here John turns and he sees Jesus, and he, and he does the best that he can to describe Jesus. And anytime we describe God or anytime we describe Jesus, the language in the literature is always, he was like this. Because, because what God is, there really is no, there's nothing in this world. There's really nothing in this world. So the best that we can say is, all I know is your voice isn't the sound of many waters, but it's something like the sound of many waters because it's like something I have never heard before. And, and, and your faith, the, the closest thing that I can create in my language and in my paradigm is that it's like staring into the sun, which all of us know that you can't really stare into the sun and not be violently overtaken by it, right? I mean, if you stare into the sun, you're going to go blind because of the brilliance and the radiance of the sun. And here John says, I'm looking into the face of Jesus, and the only thing that I can come up with is that it's like staring deep into the sun, so utterly and completely other than this world. And here John is face to face, captivated by Jesus. That's what Revelation is about. And isn't this interesting? Look at what, look at what Jesus says. The first thing he says, he says, don't be afraid. Friends, we don't have to walk in fear when we walk through the book of Revelation. One of the things that Jesus is trying to say to the church at large and Antioch in particular is, you don't have to be afraid. And if there's fear in your heart, that's gonna color everything that you read in this book. And so Jesus, right from the beginning says, I want to attack and I want to address and I wanna redeem and I wanna remove and I wanna heal the fear that's inside of you. And the way he does that is by revealing himself. The book of Revelation was designed so that the beauty and the greatness of God would become greater than the fear that is in our heart of the unknown and the uncertain. And the more that we fixate our eyes on Jesus, the less that affliction and hardship and persecution will have in our lives. The second purpose of the book is to encourage the church to remain a faithful witness to Jesus and to endure till the end, to remain a faithful witness to Jesus and to endure till the end. Look back at Revelation 1 and look again with me at verses 1 and 2. The revelation from Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Did you know that in the Greek, the word testify, the word testimony, the word witness, the word martyr are all the same word? Testify, testimony, witness, and martyr are all the same word. When I break this down, it's going to make complete sense. It's the word. There's a variation of it, but I'm using the word martyreo. It's the, it's the verb form of the Greek word martus, which is the noun of martyr. We've actually taken that word martus and we, and we have now translated that word as martyr because a martyr is someone who testifies to the truth even to the point of death. So what does it mean to, to testify? So when we get up here, we have testimony services. Or you call up your mom or you have coffee with a friend and you're testifying to the goodness of God. You know what that means? It means to give witness to the truth, even to the point of death. So in the book of Acts, we see this over and over and over again. We find in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that the Holy Spirit will give us power to be a witness. 
We could also translate that and say that the Holy Spirit, the power of God living inside of us is not just for charismatic moments. Follow me. It's not just for the exercise of gifts, as much as I love those. The power of the Holy Spirit is to give us that supernatural grace of God to testify to the truth of Jesus, to remain a witness, even if it costs us our lives. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit's given us to. That's what it means to be a witness. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. A witness on a witness stand is someone who has sworn to tell the truth, to testify, to agree with, to proclaim truth, even if it means their lives. And Jesus being first and foremost, the witness who is faithful to God. Look at the word, I mean, you'll, you'll see this in the notes here, testify, Revelation 1, 2, 22, verse 16, 18, and 20, the word testimony is martyria. We find this in numerous passages. I'm looking at letter B, number three. Look at Revelation 1, 9 with me. Revelation chapter one, verse nine. This says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here's the author. Many people believe that this was John the Apostle, the same person that wrote the Gospel of John and the three letters of John. Some scholars debate that because it's not very clear. What we do know is that his name is John. And we also know that he, was a, he had some form of pastoral connection and relationship with the seven churches that were there in Asia Minor. And we also know that he was exiled to the island of Patmos because he was enduring suffering because of his testimony to the word of God and because he was a witness to Jesus. So here's somebody, he's writing it from the place of pain. He's writing it from the cost that he is paid to be a witness. This isn't theory to John. This isn't a concept. This isn't some, some, some code for him to crack. This is real. Are, are, you, are you with me on this? This is real. John is exiled because the imperial cult and those that were in the form of position and power at that time removed him from his influence and his proximity with the churches of that time because he was a faithful witness. Now, here's a great statement. Uh, this book, in fact, offers one of the clearest and sharpest vision of God's ultimate purpose for the whole creation and of the way in which the powerful forces of evil and at work that are at work in a thousand ways, but not least in idolatrous and tyrannous political systems. I'm gonna translate all this. This book offers us a sharp understanding of how Jesus the Messiah and the consequent costly victory of his followers gains victory. What does that mean? It means very simply that we can be a faithful witness, even in the midst of being exiled, even in the midst of being imprisoned, even in the midst of martyrdom itself, because this is the way that Jesus wins. And consequently, it's the way that he calls us to win in the fight of advancing his kingdom. Here's another interesting understanding of the setting of that time I mentioned how, how it's, it's, it's really probably impossible for us to understand how massive the conquest and the influence and the power of Rome was at that time. Now, when we think about the church and the churches within Asia Minor, we can't think of mega churches down the road and we can't even think of, of, of the great influence that the Christian church has today. We have to think of small fledgling bands of house churches that were spread throughout those cities. These guys literally were like grasshoppers compared to the, the mammoth power of Rome. And so here they're following Jesus. The early church, I mean, the, the writing of the book of Revelation is, is, is set somewhere between AD 60 and right at the turn of the first century. So we're talking things are brand new. 
It was written right on the heels of Nero throwing Christians into the arena. So a lot of the people that were reading the book of Revelation, they had seen people, they had seen Christians be absolutely gobbled up by lions and be burned uh, uh, at, at the stake. One, one reading that I wrote said that Nero actually would, uh, would set human torches around his uh, dinners and he would set Christians on fire as he would eat dinners and they would serve as torches for him. The people that were reading this book, they saw that. The people that were reading this book were people that were hanging out and hiding out in catacombs. Uh, they were literally the underground church and the catacombs met underneath the Colosseums. And they were praying for their brothers and sisters to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of great gladiatorial torture and pain. That's the context that we're reading. People that were reading the book of Revelation were probably questioning themselves and saying, is it really worth it? Is it really, really worth it to stay faithful to this guy that we heard stories about that was crucified for us? And the power and the pressure to succumb to Rome was so great. Do you know why Revelation was written? It was written to those people to say it's worth it. It was written to the people of those house churches in Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and Ephesus to say it is worth it to stay faithful to Jesus. It was also written to say those of you guys who do suffer death and martyrdom, you will receive a reward. He is faithful. Not only in this life, but he's faithful in the life to come. Purpose number three. The book was written actually to prepare the church for difficult times. I want to be very, very clear about this. The purpose of the book was not written so that we could predict the end. The purpose of the church was not written so that we would have the assurance that all hell would break loose and that we'd be caught up into the sky before it got really, really bad. We're going to talk more about that because that is a very popular and it's also a very misleading idea. The purpose of the book was written to say difficult times are coming. You are going to go through them. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse. But remember, Jesus is worth it. And to him who overcomes and to him who remains faithful to the end, there will be reward. It was written as an encouragement, but also as a warning. Revelation 1.1, the revelation from Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, a lot of different ways to interpret that. Quite literally and quite historically, if we read this book historically, what we will find is that John was writing this book to those seven churches because he knew by way of prophetic insight given to him by an angel from Jesus, from God the Father, things are going to get bad. Be prepared. Steady your hearts. Press into God. In a couple of weeks, we're going to actually do an analysis of the seven churches to whom these seven letters were written. And what we'll find is that there's actually three common denominators. There's, there's, there's three key issues that each of these churches are facing, either one of those issues or all three. We're going to talk about those because each of those three issues are things that the church throughout all of history have faced and the message remains the same. In the midst of difficult times, steady your heart, lean into Jesus, galvanize your faith, remain faithful till the end. The role of God's people is to engage in this holy war, but not warfare as many of us have been trained and conditioned to think. This is not a battle that we can power up with our will to overcome. The way we win this battle is by utter trust in the faithfulness of goodness of God and laying our lives down. That's how the lamb wins warfare. That's how the lamb's people win warfare. And herein lies the heart of the book because the lot of those seven churches in the war will be one of suffering some of those churches were actually already experiencing suffering at the time it was written and, and John knew by way of revelation that that suffering was going to increase. I wanna read verse nine again because I think it's very, very important. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. Look at those three words, suffering, 
kingdom, patient endurance, suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. N.T. Wright says something here I think is brilliant. It says, he is still, he says, speaking of John, a partner with the churches. John is partnering with the churches. He is partnering in his current suffering. He is partnering with the kingdom and he is partnering in the patient endurance in Jesus. And then the brilliant scholar N.T. Wright says, this might be an odd combination, you might think. How can the kingdom, which means the sovereign rule, sit together with suffering? How is that even possible? Like when I think about God ruling in his power, I am not thinking about suffering. Those two things, like, that's an oxymoron, right? Because when God's kingdom comes, why is there still going to be suffering and patient endurance? It's part of the point of the whole book. Jesus himself won the victory through his suffering, and so must his people. In other words, the way the kingdom of God comes is by following the Lamb. The way the kingdom of God comes is not by our great power and by our great bravado and by our great positions and by our great certainty and by our great faith. The way the kingdom of God comes is by obediently and faithfully trusting the lamb and following him even to the point of death. That is how the kingdom of God came and that is how the kingdom of God will come. Let's talk here for a few seconds about... uh, understanding the book. So we talked about the purpose of the series. We talked about why the book was written. Let me give you a couple of things that I hope will help you understand the book. Number one, these are basic principles of interpreting scripture. Many of these are taken by a guy named Gordon Fee, who wrote a classic work called How to Interpret the Bible for All It's Worth, one of the classic hermeneutic books that I was issued in undergraduate theology year one. Basic ways to interpret the Bible. Number one, you must read for the original intent. You must read the scriptures for their original intent. Now, let me, let me fill you in on something. As your pastor and your friend, when we ask someone, when we read a scripture, how many guys have ever sat? Now, I don't want to trick you guys like this. We have all sat in Bible studies and we've read a passage of scripture and then we've heard the classic question, what does that mean to you? Okay, we've all heard it. We've all heard it. It doesn't really matter what it means to you because the scriptures can only have one meaning and that is the meaning that God intended when he wrote it. Because if I were to sit down and I were to read the book of Revelation and I were to ask every single one of you, what does that mean to you? We would have about 300 different understandings of what that means to us based on our education, based on our Bible knowledge, based on our fear, based on, based on all total, just a lot of stuff. It's gonna mean a lot of different things. It means what it meant. It means what it meant. It means what God intended it to mean for a particular people, a particular time, and a particular context. Now, an original meaning can have multiple applications. So when he wrote this to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor to encourage them to remain faithful, we can apply that to our current context. Some of you may be feeling the pressure on whether or not to stand up and to be truthful in a hostile work environment. That's an application of the interpretation that was what God meant for the people that were in the early church at that time. We can still apply those principles but the interpretation remains the same. The interpreter's first task is to seek John's original intent and therewith the Holy Spirit's original intent as much as that is possible. Revelation was not written for the purpose of helping us predict the end of the world. There, I said it. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Jonathan and I walked through a particular bookstore here in town. And if you go to the prophecy and end time section, what you will find is numerous books about codes and numerous books about wars and showdowns in the Middle East. And let me just give you what I believe is a humble tip and a humble clue in how to interpret things. Anytime we associate a modern leader or a contemporary nation with the beast or the antichrist, we missed it. 
They may carry the spirit of the beast, but what that does is it automatically creates an enemy and it creates things that are divisive. There are interpretations that, that pit Mog and Agog as Russia and parts of China and Iran and the Middle East. God loves the people of Russia. One of the main messages of Revelation is that he wants all of the nations around the throne. One of the main messages in Revelation is that the lamb is worthy who purchased the nations from around the world. That's one of the main messages. So the moment we start saying now this person is, this person is the Antichrist or this nation right here, or this, this confederation is a group of the 10 that represent the 10 horns that were on the beast, we're already, we're already missing the heart of God because God loves the nations. And he wants to see the worship of nations around the throne, around the presence of God. Number two, we must know the type and the rules of the genre you're reading. What is that? You don't read all books the same. Now, we all know that. How many of you guys deal with poetry? You don't read poetry the same way you read prose. You don't read a love letter the same way that you would read the newspaper. Because it's written for a different purpose. And if you read poetry, literally, you're going to end up with some weird stuff. Most of the Psalms was written as poetry. And yet none of us, none of us say that God, God is in fact a strong tower, like literally a tower that I can walk out to like Bishop's Castle or something. <laughs> no, we don't do that. Because we understand this is poetry. He's like a strong tower, which means that, that when things are difficult, he's going to provide a place of shelter and safety and solace. If we read the Song of Solomon literally, I'll leave that to your imagination. Not all of Revelation is to be read literally. In fact, and this is one of the things that Jeffrey mentioned to me, God is very, very specific. And you'll see this, when you read the Revelation as a whole unit, there are many times that symbols are involved and then God actually explains what those symbols mean. Now, I want you to think about this here with me for a second. If God goes to the links to explain certain symbols because he wants us to know what those symbols mean, what does that say about symbols that he doesn't explain? And yet we take a lot of literary imagination to explain what those symbols are. And he leaves those symbols blank for a reason. In fact, one author says that the book of Revelation is actually, actually better understood among children. Because when you read a story out loud to children, their imaginations are, it's, it's, it's a world of dragons. It's a world of make, but it's fantasy. And it's written like that on purpose to engage a different part of our heart and our mind for the intensity of the message that God was communicating. Number three, we must read scripture and particularly Revelation as a whole. In fact, many scholars would recommend that when you read Revelation, you should read it from start to finish. From chapter one to chapter 22. What, when we get in trouble is when we, we cherry pick verses. And a lot of people call this puzzling Revelation together. And so a lot of times what you'll see is you'll see people take Revelation and they'll pull some of Matthew 23 and 24. They'll pull 1 Thessalonians 4. and they'll, they, That's not how you're to read Revelation. You're to read Revelation from chapter 1 to chapter 22 because it is a contained unit of Scripture that has a message and a purpose from start to finish. Number four, tips for reading Revelation. We must understand the difference between symbol and code. I've got, I don't know if I put them in your notes here, but I've got numerous examples here. Chapter 1, verse 17, the one that was like a son of man, he is Christ. Chapter 1, verse 20, the seven golden lampstands, he explains this, they are the seven churches. Now that'd be pretty weird if you're like, I saw seven, seven lampstands and a fire and stars. And No, he explains all of these things. The lampstands are churches. Chapter 7, verse 14, he talks about a numberless multitude and then he explains that there are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They're not codes for us to break and crack. They're symbols that have specific meanings that the people of that day understood. Here's another point to help us understand it. We must read Revelation in cycles as opposed to a linear progression. 
Now, this is really, really important. I don't have a lot of time, but I gave you a, an, a very important quote here that I think is going to help, and I'm going to read it. Those who read Revelation as a whole encounter visions that alternatively threaten and assure them. Now, if, 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 if I could, I would, I would put a, a graphic here up on the screen. And what the graphic would look like, it, was a, it would look like actually these concentric circles that touch. So they, they, would, they, would, they would start from a top and they would circle down to the bottom and they would come back to the top and they would just repeat over and over and over again. Here's a, here's a great way to understand this. For those of you guys who understand theater, in fact, the book of Revelation was written to be read aloud because most of the people at that time couldn't read. And so it was designed to be heard, to engage the senses it is the only book that touches all five senses in the Bible. You see the prophet eating the scroll. You see him seeing and hearing and touching and tasting. It is a complete sensory book. And it's written in cycles, much like a theater play is written. This summer, Christy and I went to go see The Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. And one of the things that you'll see about Broadway shows, because it's not like a movie, you'll, you'll, you'll see that they'll have one scene or one act and that scene and that act will take place, and then another scene, another act will take place, but it might be actually in the same time frame as the previous scene is that you saw. Is that making sense? And so Revelation is not this, this literal, linear book that starts from a particular time period of history that ends with our time today. It's written like a play with different acts that are being cycled over and over again, spoken from different angles, all communicating the exact same thing. Let's keep reading here. Those who read Revelation as a whole encounter visions that threaten and assure them. With increasing intensity, the visions at the bottom of the spiral threaten the reader's sense of security by confronting them with horsemen that represent conquest, violence, hardship, death, and then we see portents in heaven, earth, sea by seemingly insuperable adversaries who oppose those who worship God in Christ. Nevertheless, each time the clamor of conflict becomes unbearable, listeners are transported into the presence of God, the Lamb and the heavenly chorus. You'll see this throughout the entire book. In fact, every scene or every act begins in the presence of God, beginning in chapter one all the way to the end begins in the presence of God, and as it reaches the downward part of that spiral, there will be moments of conflict. And here's the purpose, multiple purposes, but one that I'll communicate. One, it is actually to shake our sense of security. And we read about horsemen and red riders and black horses and death following them and beasts and all kinds of crazy imaginary things. Here's what happens. Our sense of security gets rocked, and then he pulls us right back into the presence of God. He does it on purpose to reassure us that Jesus is worthy and that there is reward called the presence of God forever for all of his people. Threatening visions and assuring visions function differently, but they serve the same end, which is that listeners might continue to trust God and remain faithful to God. All right, in closing, let me just say this. I'm not gonna read all this, but there's a lot of, well, my notes have a lot of great information. I will put, I will put this, online for you because, and I'm going to read this short snippet. It's very important for us to understand this. The book of Revelation was actually a new genre of writing that combined three types of writings, apocalyptic literature, prophetic writing, and in the form of a pastoral letter. We cannot lose this. John was writing as a pastor to churches. If we lose that, we lose everything. The book, of the, the, the book here begins on verse four, chapter one. He says, this is John and I'm writing to the churches. You hear the heart of a pastor and a father come out, but he uses a type of literature. Now, my buddies all have this, they love these sci-fi books. I, I'm like completely clueless. These guys have like probably a hundred variations and understandings of, they, they, there's like, yeah, there's like fantasies different than sci-fi and sci-fi is different than, than apocalyptic. And then there's like these, these, it's all crazy. If they set up here, they blow your mind. And so I'm like, I, I just check out because I'm like, it's way beyond my mental capacity. But it's a form of literature that actually has rules. Isn't that right, Joe? There's rules, right, Dan? There's rules. Yeah, yeah, you're a nerd. It's okay, man. Just stand up. 
and just say, that, that's who I'm in. Just embrace that. <laughs> and I didn't understand this. I thought the Lord of the Rings and Minority Report were in this. No, don't you dare do that. What is wrong with you? Harry Potter is not the same. I mean, they just, they know this stuff. There's rules. Randall, are you a closet sci-fi fantasy nerd too? Awesome. You need to hook up with these guys, man. Paralandra and all this stuff. I mean, God, whatever. It's, it's awesome. It's awesome. Okay. I say all that to say that apocalyptic literature is the exact same thing. There are rules to the literature. Now, you may not know this because I didn't, but maybe you did. You're, you guys are a bright bunch. What is apocalyptic literature is a form of literature very common to John's audience. So we read Revelation and we freak out because it's unlike anything else in the scriptures. This was like old hat to the people of John's day. It was a type of literature that was written to communicate certain things in a certain way for a certain reason. It was always done with a narrative framework in which, watch this, you're going to blow your mind, a revelation of transcendent reality sound like revelation to you, is given by an angel or otherworldly being to a human recipient. Usually the revelation unveils a supernatural world and points to salvation at the end of time. It describes the apocalypse or apocalyptic literature describes revelations coming in various ways, including visions, journeys into another world, conversations with angels and seers who travel along to interpret what they see. They assume that the world of ordinary life is mysterious and so revelation comes from a supernatural source. Apocalyptic literature understands the present age to be dominated by the powers of sin, evil, and death. Guys, this is revelation. Are you seeing this? Are you understanding why this is important? Because... Otherwise, we read this literally and we start looking to find the Antichrist and to be escaped into the sky. But then when we look at this and go, no, this is a type, it's a form of literature. In apocalyptic literature, they anticipate that in the future, the wicked will be defeated or judged. So this is not new. Revelation was not new. The world will be transformed into a state of blessedness and joy. Revelation envisions the satanic powers of the beast and its allies making war against the saints until God defeats them. And the underlying message of all apocalyptic literature is salvation, the purpose of apocalyptic literature. People generally wrote apocalypses to assure readers that God would be faithful despite conditions of evil in the present age. Apocalyptic literature was written for the purpose of encouraging readers to remain loyal to God rather than giving in to powers that oppose God. Isn't that amazing? Is anybody else being blown away by, by me up here? It's amazing. It's amazing. It helps you read and interpret and set your expectations for what the book of Revelation is. All right, stand to our feet. Guys, in the next few weeks, we're gonna hit some awesome stuff. We're gonna talk about Jesus as the lamb and we're gonna talk about what it means to follow the lamb. We're gonna talk about what it means to bring God's kingdom and to conquer. We're, we're gonna redefine your whole paradigm of spiritual warfare. Because the way that our king wins is he wins by laying his life down. We're gonna talk about what it means to be a faithful witness. We're gonna delve into the seven churches. We're gonna find ourselves in the seven churches. We're gonna talk, talk about what empire is. And I've got a flash news warning for you. The United States of America and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, they represent empire probably more than, in, I mean, they represent empire. So we have to wrestle with that. We have to grapple with that. And just like the churches of Revelation, there is a pressure there is a pressure to succumb and submit to the power of empire and to walk in the ways of, of greed and materialism and independence and power of empire or to follow the lamb. What are we gonna do? What is Antioch gonna do? What is the Church of America gonna do? We're gonna talk about dispensationalism and rapture. We're gonna talk about the throne room and the nations and it's gonna be so, so good. I encourage you guys to keep your notes we're going to update these throughout the week online. And uh, I've, got, 
I've got A through I, whatever number that is, I have no idea. But we got about eight resources here. If any of you guys are like, you know what, I really wanna delve more into this, I would say start with one particular book, two books in particular. There's a book on here by Craig Coaster called Revelation and the End of All Things. Amazing. And then there's a book written by N.T. Wright called um, Revelation for Everyone. And, uh, and that's been very, very helpful as well, um, as, along with all these other books. So how many of you guys are excited for the next eight weeks? Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray today that we would have open hearts and open minds, and I'm going to pray that we make discoveries, that we find Jesus, that we find ourselves in the presence of God, and that understanding by the way of God's Holy Spirit comes to us to empower us to be faithful witnesses. How many of you guys can agree with that? All right, grab somebody's hand with me this morning if you would. Father, today in the name of Jesus, we thank you that you have written us a book. You have sent us a book. You have sent us a letter. And it's a letter that you wrote specifically to our brothers and sisters hundreds of years ago that were on the brink and on the precipice of going through just just unbelievable things because of their belief and their faith in Jesus. And Father, we know that the book of Revelation probably means more to people in Pakistan and China and Syria and Somalia than it does to us because we've not experienced that level of testing and trial. Father God, we have in many ways assumed that blessing equals freedom from hardship. And I'm asking that you would deconstruct that. I'm asking, Father God, that you would put inside of us a heart that is faithful to Jesus. I'm asking that you would put inside of us a grit, not by our soul, but by the empowerment of your spirit that says we will follow the lamb at all times, at all costs. I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would hover over us over the next eight weeks, which would also include our national election, and that you would give us wisdom on how we frame, on how we form, on how we communicate, on how we language issues that are very important to our culture. But Father God, all with the understanding that your kingdom supersedes this culture and that your kingdom remains regardless of what